So we do pray, mighty breath of God, that you will blow through this place. We pray that you will blow through Bolt Hines Timmer, that your spirit will reign in that dorm, that as Jason and other people pick leaders for next year, that you will be the one who brings people to his mind, that you will be the one who prompts people to apply to put their name in, to say, I can do that, so that you will raise up leaders. And we pray, Lord, that this becomes a dorm that's known for its wisdom, for known for people who walk in right paths and follow the good trails and show us how to live before the face of God. We pray for Jason and his family as they enjoy the experience of living together as a family in the midst of a college community. We thank you for calling him to Calvin College. And we pray for him and his wife and his kids as they prepare to lead the program out at Snow Mountain Ranch this summer, that you will again surround them with the people that they need so that they can flourish as you have called them to lead others to flourish. We pray for our community. We are so grateful that you were able to heal our student who was so sick in her semester abroad that use the generous gifts of these students to allow her mom and her dad to be with her and watch her recover fully. We thank you for bringing our community back together again after spring break. We thank you for stories of service trips where lives were affected. We thank you for times of relaxation and rest, for gathering again with family or friends. And now, Lord, as we move into this last bit of the semester, we pray that you help us to be focused, help us to get our work done. We pray for those of us who are ready to be done and can be a little impatient. And so remind us, Lord, that if you've called us to be here at Calvin College, you've called us to be students, and we need to fulfill that vocation before your face. That's not about impressing our parents or our professors. It's about bringing glory to you with the gifts that you've given us. So call us back to being good students for your sake and your glory. And Lord, we thank you that this is a place where we can celebrate gifts and talents. We thank you for the life of Bert Pullman, the chair of our music department who died last summer and whose gifts and talents and heart for you were celebrated last night. We thank you that music unites people and points them to you. And thank you for using his scores, his lyrics to bring hearts to you last night. We thank you too that this is a place that has talent and that we were able to witness students dancing and singing and speaking, making films, all for your glory and for fun. We thank you that we can be a place that celebrates all kinds of gifting and talents around us. It's amazing, Lord, what you have done here, and we stand in awe. And we think about high school seniors who are right now wondering about which college they should choose. And Lord, we pray that you gather together amazing young men and women to bring them here to Calvin College. We pray that you bring us people who have a heart after your own heart, whether they're new believers or curious or deep in faith. Lord, bring us people who will make us wise, who will make us love you more, 
And so, Lord, we pray that you will prompt the hearts of high school seniors who are on the fence, on the bubble, unsure, that you will bring them to Calvin and strengthen our community in this. We pray for our new provost, Cheryl Branson, and as Provost Claudia Beverslus prepares to transition, we pray for grace and tenderness and wisdom, and we pray that it's a beautiful transition from one seasoned leader to another. We pray a blessing on our president. We thank you for keeping him safe in the travels that he has done this spring. We pray for him as he has conversations about money and fundraising, about budgets and cuts, about the good things too, about what students and faculty are doing together in classrooms. We pray for his stamina. We pray for his health. We pray that he is anointed by your spirit each day when he has to get up and speak to people that you will give him the words and he will end each day knowing that he couldn't do this job without you and he can point to all the ways in which you provided. Lord, we continue to pray for Megan Herringa as she heals from cancer. We pray that the tests that she will have soon will reveal that her cancer is indeed gone. We pray, Lord, that the healing will be full and complete and she will be restored and as she does her therapy, make her body stronger and stronger every day. We pray for Michael Thompson as he adapts to taking chemotherapy orally to prevent the return of brain cancer. Help his mind to be clear so that he can focus on his work. And for Professor Darren Prope, we pray your tender mercies continue for him and his family as he fights cancer. We thank you for the good news that it's not as serious as they thought. And yet, chemo is tough. And so use it, Lord, to strengthen his body and cure him from cancer and bring him back to us in the classroom. And Lord, there are other heartaches around, disappointments, sorrows. And so as we turn to your word and we bear witness to Jesus weeping, and we bear witness to the truth of resurrection, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you take this story and use it in our lives in ways that we cannot even right now imagine. But Lord, we pray that in the reading and proclamation of your word that things happen, that things happen in our lives and the lives of people who are sitting here tonight that will move us from death to life. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people say, amen. So tonight we are looking at the story of Jesus and Lazarus. This can be found in your pew Bibles on page 873 in John 11, the Gospel of John chapter 11. We'll be looking through a lot of text tonight, so you're going to want to have your Bibles out and you're going to want to keep them open. That will help you to pay attention tonight. So John 11, found in your pew Bibles on page 873. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it's for God's glory, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, I just want to say that the Greek here is very clear, like it's emphatic. He loved Martha, he loved Mary, he loved Lazarus. After having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And John, who's writing this gospel, wants us to be really clear that it's not because he didn't like them. It's not because he had other things to do. He's really clear that something else was going on, and his deep love for these people was not compromised in the fact that he stayed. Then, after this, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, "Um, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world, but those who walk at night stumble because the light is not with them, which is not, by the way, an answer to the question. (laughs) Right? So, Remember when he was talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like, oh, you're a great teacher, and he starts like saying all these things that have nothing to do with what Nicodemus has just asked him? He's doing the same thing here. They're like, do you really want to go Judea? And he's like, you have to walk in the light. (laughs) What? What? So what he's saying here is that daylight is safe. You walk in the daylight, and daylight is safe, and the will of God is like daylight. That's what scholars have unearthed out of this parable. That's what he's saying in this little proverb. He's like, you got to walk in the light, and the will of God is light, and you do not need to be afraid. The safest place for any of you is to be living in the will of God. And if you're living in the will of God, you are walking in the light. So that's what he's saying to them there, even though it sounds a little bit like a Jedi Master riddle. After saying this, he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Because maybe they heard that he was sick, right? And they thought, well, you know, you're sick. It's good sleep, right? Sleep is good. Sleep is good generally. I just want to encourage all of you <laughs> in that. So, so they're really thinking, like, if, if he's sleeping, he'll be okay. And so Jesus makes it really clear. He says, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, which also makes no sense. He has just told them that one of his dearest friends in the world has died, and he's glad he wasn't there. And they had to be thinking, this doesn't make any sense. This is your dear friend. He's died. You're glad we weren't there so that we can believe. Believe what? And then I want this verse 16, I just want you to hold this because in a few weeks we're going to tell, uh, talk about Jesus and Thomas. And this is a very key verse for the life of Thomas. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now that's significant. Don't flip the page. Hold on. <laughs> four days is really important because in the Jewish tradition, you were buried on the day you died. So you died and you were buried. Now, this meant that sometimes they buried people who weren't dead. If you got knocked unconscious 
and they couldn't tell whether or not you were alive or dead, they would bury you. They were like, you know, I, I don't know. They didn't have sophisticated equipment. There was no like beep, beep, beep. There was none of that. So they would bury people, and every now and then there's a story that's written about where someone was buried and was like, hey, guys, dum, 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 dum. like, let me out. So they believed that, you know, by, by the fourth day for sure, like three days maybe, but the fourth day for sure, you're like dead, dead. You're like stinky dead, decomposing flesh, dead, dead. So that's, that's significant for the story. He was really, really dead. Not like in The Princess Bride when he's mostly dead. <laughs> he's really dead. So that's an, one example, uh, again, of how Princess Bride, not Scripture. Not, so, just so you know. Funny, not Scripture. Four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. Now, this is a, this, Jews still do this today, practicing Jews. They call it sitting shiva. You sit for seven days, and often you literally sit and you don't shower, and you cover the mirrors now in contemporary society, and people bring you food, and you sit, and you grieve together, and they've been doing this now for how many days? Four, right? So they are deep into grief. They know that he's not, it's all kind of settling in around them that this is real. So the Jews come together to honor this, to sit Shiva. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, which is kind of a radical thing to do when you're sitting Shiva. Usually people come to you, you don't go to them. Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because she thought, they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let's just pause it right there. Keep it open. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Each of the sisters, the first time they link eyes with Jesus, this is what they say to him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And what we hear in this is a an amazing claim of faith, Right? I believe that you can heal people. I believe that you actually prevent death from happening. I've seen it. I've heard about it. You can stop death. You can heal people. And my brother is dead. 
So there's this, this twofold thing, like, my brother is dead, and you could have prevented it. So the grief is this twofold. Not only did I lose my brother, who in that society would have been their financial security, their source of protection and provision, and now there were two women, vulnerable and exposed. Not only did they lose their dear brother, Lazarus, but also the friend who could have prevented it from happening didn't show up. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it doesn't take us a lot to know exactly how they felt, right? We can insert a lot of things after, Lord, if you had been here. Lord, if you had been here, my parents would still be married. Lord, if you have been here, I wouldn't be struggling with chronic illness. Lord, if you had been here, this friendship that developed into a romance that I thought was going to go the distance wouldn't have broken down. We believe that God is in charge of everything, right? Every detail of our lives, every square inch, right? Heard that? God's in charge of everything, everything we do. So anytime we've got an experience of loss or betrayal or rejection, we can say, Lord, if you had been here, if you had done things differently, if you had shown up, my life would look different than it looks. You could have prevented this accident from happening. You could have brought me friends to live with next year. You could have gotten me into that grad school. You could have gotten me the summer job that I so wanted. Lord, if you had just shown up. Some of us have been praying for people for years for them to come to faith. Some of us have been praying for years for healing in our own lives or the lives of people we love. Some of us have buried people, and it's been a lot longer than four days. Lord, if you had been here. And the temptation is to think that suffering can actually be avoided. That we can actually avoid it, like, you know, like when you're driving your car and you see a sprinkler kind of into the street, and you're like, oh, I can avoid that. I can drive right around that. We think suffering can be avoided. You can just, like, avoid it like a pothole. Oh, no, go around it. Which is a little like this right now. <laughs> we think it can be avoided. We think, oh, if I live my life right, if I just pick the right spouse, I will guarantee myself no suffering in my marriage. If I just pick the right major, I will guarantee myself no suffering in my career. If I just pick the right place to live, I can guarantee myself no suffering in anything. If there's some way to avoid suffering, I'm going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out. We are smart, capable people. If there is a way to take the car of life and avoid the suffering, we're going to do it. But the truth of it is, it's less like driving your car around a sprinkler, 
and more like driving your car through an entire Michigan winter. <laughs> and you're going to get snow, and you're going to get rain, and you're going to get snow that becomes rain, and rain that becomes snow. And then in the midst of all of this, there's going to be salt. And the salt is going to accumulate on your car. And if it stays on your car, it will eat away your car. And you know, if you've walked in the parking lot and you have kind of a dark colored jacket on and you brush against a car, and it's like, what is this on me? And some of you have the boots, right? It's like, the salt is around your boots. You got the lines around your boots, right? The soul just eats away and there is no escaping it. <laughs> Suffering is less like driving around a sprinkler and more like driving through an entire Michigan winter. You cannot avoid it. You will accumulate the garbage on your soul. So it's pretty important that we figure out how to do this. Because much as I would like to speak into your life and say, none of y'all ever going to have any troubles. I know better. You know better. Suffering comes to every life. There's a broken heart in every chair. Lord, you had been here. And so what does our Lord do? It's interesting in his exchange with Martha, he asks her to state her faith. Now I want you to think about this. Her brother has died and the person who could have prevented it is standing right here before her and saying, do you believe in me? Do you still believe I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will die, but they will live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you still believe this, Martha? Are you still with me? Are you still on the team? Even though you are sitting here right now and you've got a tear-stained face and you haven't eaten well in four days and you can't believe I didn't show up, Martha, do you still believe? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Wow. That's amazing. And we're going to look at that more a little bit later, but I just want you to hold that right now. That here is a woman in the deepest grief of her life, standing before the person who could have fixed it, and she says, I'm still with you. I still love you. I still believe. So he has this exchange with Martha where he resonates with her faith and then he moves with Mary to the grave. Let's pick up the story at 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see Jesus began to weep. The Greek here for weep, it's really more bawling. 
It wasn't like quiet tears. It was like whole body grief that overwhelmed him. Jesus bawled. Why? Why? I mean, he, he knows how the story's going, right? He's known it from the beginning. This, this illness will not end in death, right? He's already know it. He knows where this is going. He knows how the story goes. Why does Jesus cry? The first funeral I ever did was for a person that I didn't know very well. I had visited him once in the nursing home, and then he died a couple months later. And his family was from out of town. I didn't know them. So I met with them, and we planned the service. And then the next day, we gathered together in the funeral home. And the family was with me around the casket, and uh, the worshipers were in the other room in the funeral home. And I offered a prayer, and then the funeral director closed the casket. And as he's closing the casket, there's this little boy standing there. And he leans against his mom, and he just starts to cry. Just cries and cries and cries. And you know what I did? I cried and cried and cried. And his mom cried, and everybody who was there cried. Because when you are in the space of someone who is in deep grief and you feel with your heart what it must be like to be them, you grieve with them. That's what it is to be human. That's what it is to have a connection with other people. So what we see here leading up to this point in the passage, Jesus is making claims about his divinity right? Martha, do you believe that I'm the Messiah? Do you believe I'm the resurrection and life? Do you believe that I'm the Son of God? These huge, majestic claims, fully divine. And then he goes to the grave and he sees everyone and he just weeps because Jesus is fully human. He knows what it's like to cry so hard you can't catch your breath. He knows what it's like to stand before a tomb and miss that person with all your heart. Jesus is fully human in this moment, and he is grieving, I think, every death. I think in this small little picture, we have an idea of what it's like for the Son of God to really take on humanity and say, this is painful and hard. Jesus bawls. And some of the Jews look at him and they say, oh, see how much he loved him. And other Jews say, well, you know, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? 38, then Jesus again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there's a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
Now just stop right there. When did he tell her anything about the glory of God? Go up, look in the 20s. Anything there about the glory of God? When did he say anything about the glory of God? Look at verse 3 and verse 4. The sisters send a message to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So there are scholars who believe that just as Mary and Martha sent their message to Jesus, that this message got back to Martha. And that's why as soon as they see him, the first thing they say is, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Isn't that what your message meant? That this illness would not end in death? Like, did we not get it? Is something wrong? Like, what happened? And so now, he's been dead in the tomb four days. And Martha says, don't take away the tomb. Like, this is not going to be pleasant. Do not roll away the stone. And he looks at her and he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. Now, I want you to think, they take away the stone. People are all gathered in around them. What do they smell? Death. There is the literal smell of death in the air, and he takes a moment to pray. Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, there are scholars who point out that not only pretty significant miracle that he came back to life, but he was bound very tightly, very tightly. Like, they tried to bind people so that their limbs would be completely straight. And some of you have been to Israel, and you know that while some of the tombs have an entrance that's larger, some of them are very, very small. And so imagine, Jesus has just called your name, and you're all bound up, and you're like, I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to do this. <laughs> right? So, miracle number one, Lazarus gets up. Miracle number two, Lazarus gets out. Right? <laughs> Unbind him and let him go. And now it's tempting to end the story there, like, woohoo, look at that. The eldest did not end in death. Ha ha ha. It's fantastic. Resurrection. However, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. 
So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked about openly among the Jews, but went from there to a town called Ephraim in the region near the wilderness, and he remained there with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and were asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Surely he will not come to the festival, will he? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so that they might arrest him. So remember when he said, this illness will not end in death, it's for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, right? And then the disciples say to him, are you sure you want to go here? This is not a good area for you. This is a dangerous place. You are taking your life into your hands to go to this area. Are you sure you want to do it? And then what does he say? You got to walk in the light, guys. The will of God is to walk in the light. And it means moving even into places that are scary and dangerous. When in the Bible, when is the moment when the Son of Man is glorified? When is the moment when the Son of God is fully glorified? Is it now in the resurrection of Lazarus? No. It's in the death and resurrection of the Son of God. That's when he is fully glorified. That's when it happens. The death of Lazarus sets into motion the events that will lead to the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes to Bethany knowing full well that his story doesn't end with the raising of Lazarus. He goes into this dangerous place knowing that once he raises Lazarus from the dead, there are going to be people who will plot to kill him. And so look afresh at the one who weeps at the grave. Because he knows that standing right around him, right in that circle of people who are going to witness him raise someone from the dead, right in that circle of people, there are going to be people who plot to kill him. And he goes. He goes to Bethany. He goes to Martha, and he says to her, even though you don't know what's going on, even though your heart is broken right now, even though I didn't show up when you wanted me to show up, do you believe? Because Martha, this isn't the hardest thing you're going to have to see. This isn't the toughest season of your life because things are going to get worse before they get better. And I need to know, are you in? 
And what makes Martha able to say that she's in? Where does her spiritual resilience come from? Where does her deep strength and faith come from? How is she able to look into the face of the one who has disappointed her so greatly and say, I believe that you're Messiah. I believe you're the Son of God. You're the one who was to come. I know that my brother will rise again at the last day. How is she able to do that? Because she spent time with Jesus. She knew Jesus. She had listened to him. She had spoken with him. She had watched him move. She had watched him heal. She knew her Jesus. She had spent time with Jesus. So when her life went into turmoil, when the grime of suffering was up to her windshield, when she just could hardly see it anymore, when it had so accumulated on her soul, because she had spent time with Jesus, all of that time with Jesus was like wax on her cart. All the grime just slid right off. It had no sticking power because she had spent time with Jesus. Sometimes you see people who've had really hard lives. Sometimes they're on this campus. We have faculty members here who've lost children, some of them to suicide. Some of them committed suicide when they were about your age. And yet these faculty members get up every morning and they come to campus and they pour their lives into you. How do they do that? Because they've spent time with Jesus. They have spent time lamenting before his face about what has been taken from him. And they have spent time immersed in the word and immersed in prayer and immersed in Christian community And that's where resilience comes from. We have this phrase, the spiritual disciplines, which sounds so heavy, right? Spiritual disciplines, like you got to like, do them or you're in trouble or something. What the spiritual disciplines are is an invitation to spend time with Jesus. That's what they are. Through prayer, through scripture, through worship together, through Christian community, celebration, confession, through walking the labyrinth, all of those spiritual disciplines are an opportunity to spend time with Jesus so that we put a good wax on our lives so that when the grime of suffering gathers up, it doesn't stick and the salt of suffering does not eat us away because we have spent time with Jesus. And our Jesus is not only fully divine, standing afar off. I am the Son of God. Our God does not pull up on the side of a grave and say, stand back, everybody, I got this. Our Jesus is fully human. So when he goes to a grave and the people around him are weeping and his friend is in the tomb, he weeps because he is fully human and fully divine. He is fully human, so he understands when your friends choose to live with other people next year. He is fully human, so he understands the disappointment when someone breaks up with you. He is fully human, so he knows the sleepless nights that come when you don't know where you're going to be working next year. 
He is fully human. But he is also fully divine. And because he is fully divine, he doesn't just stand by a grave and weep, but he speaks to the person, the stinky, dead person in the tomb, and he says, come out, because I've had about enough of this. Come out. Unbind him and let him go. Come out. I know that this is going to cost me my life, Lazarus, but come out. I know that people are going to plot to kill me because I do this, but come out. Because my whole purpose, my whole glorification comes in moving the entire creation from death to life. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. And so we can say to him, Lord, if you had been here, my life would be different. And he grieves with us, and he has tears with us, and he is always working to bring resurrection. Now, there will be things that will happen in your life that will be inexplicable. And I'm not going to stand up here and say that every time you suffer, it's just going to lead to something great. Or if you get rejected somewhere, it just means something better is on the horizon. I'm not going to say that because it's not always true. Look at the lives of his disciples. Didn't turn out so well. But I am going to say that our Jesus, who is fully human and fully divine, is working in ways much larger than we can see to move the entire creation from death to life. So your small story and my small story may have chapters that we do not understand that are inexplicable by anybody around us, and we may lament them and grieve them and carry them with us all the way until our earthly death, but we do not know if our suffering in that particular time and in that particular way is bearing fruit in ways we will never understand or imagine or envision in this life. We don't know how God is using these things, just like Mary and Martha didn't understand how the death of Lazarus put all of these things into motion, but God knew. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit knew it all. And God the Son, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, knows you. Knows your life, knows your tears, knows the losses you have suffered. And because our Jesus is fully human, his heart breaks for you. And because he is fully divine, he is working to put all of our hearts back together again. Did I not tell you that if you believed, he said, you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So as you move in your life and as you speak with your friends, pay attention to the glory of God because it often involves a lot of death before we see the resurrection. Will you pray with me? Our God, 
What an amazing gift it is to have Jesus. Someone who knows us from the inside out. Someone who is majestic and mighty, the Messiah, the Son of God, and yet at the side of a grave, he bawls his eyes out because he gets pain so deeply. He understands it and knows it. And so we have a Savior who sits with us when we are in grief and confused. And God, we pray that we build up the emotional and spiritual resilience by spending time with our Jesus so that like Martha, even in a time of deep grief and confusion and misunderstanding, we too can say, you, Jesus, are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the one who has come into the world. Lord, help us. Help us to be drawn to you, to spend time with you so that we can build up what we need for the suffering that is to come. We thank you for the death and resurrection of our Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.